0: Are you a host like Monokuma is a host in Danganronpa? Are you... I'm sure that
1: I am exactly that thing of which you speak,
0: Brie. Oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Jeff, I mean, I'm going to yeah. survive. I'm just going to tell you right now. Go for <laughs> I it. Will, I will survive this show, just so you know.
1: Welcome to Simone's Death Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Who will be the last podcaster standing?
0: You could do Monokuma. You could easily do a Monokuma if you wanted to.
1: I am a small bear, and I love anime. (laughs) That's my uh, assessment of that character.
0: It was like Monokuma's on Rocket this week. It was so good.
1: Welcome. (laughs) I can't wait for the ad reads. Hello, and welcome to Rocket. Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Linode and ExpressVPN. I'm De Rochefort, a video producer at Polygon.com, and I'm joined today by Brianna Wu, Democratic candidate for Congress, and Jeff Wong, back again. Hello. Hello. Welcome back. How do you feel?
2: I feel great. It was great. I have now officially met all three Rocket (laughs) co-hosts in person.
1: We met at PodCon. A mere one weekend
2: ago.
0: So, who's taller in person? Is it me or Simone? Because you can objectively say this.
2: I think it's you, Brie.
0: Okay. Okay. Just checking.
1: Just checking. I think that's also true. But, I mean, the listeners don't have to know that, Brie. Come on. Just let them think that I'm 10 feet tall.
0: You are, uh, to me, you're 10 feet. You're 12 feet
2: tall. Personality wise, I 100% agree.
1: Jeff, do you want to remind the listeners uh, about where you come from and where? Yes, you? I live
2: in the Bay Area and uh, I work as a AI and strategy consultant at MindScale.
1: Excellent.
0: So, so if we we're starting with the Danganronpa theme today, the 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 idea behind Danganronpa is every single student in the school is the ultimate something. Like you've got the ultimate fashionista, you've got the ultimate biker. So, what ultimate would you be? Oh, mean.
2: you're asking...
1: Yeah. Both of <laughs> yeah. us, both of okay. us. I would be the why ultimate you, why laugher, you go for, it's Simone. obvious.
0: L- ultimate laugher, that's very fair.
2: I am the ultimate media consumer.
0: Media consumer? Oh, wow. <laughs> that's depressing. Uh, Although gosh. I can only
2: say that because Christina's not here. Uh, I yeah. think she might contest that throne.
0: Yeah, I think she would. I think she would. I guess I would be... What would I be? I'd be the ultimate congressional candidate. No one is better <laughs> than me. Nobody. All right, well, what happens when
1: you're not a candidate anymore?
0: Oh, gosh. I guess I just graduate from Hope's Peak Academy. Anyway, I'm the only person, like, no one listening to the show knows Dangan Rumpa, cares about <laughs> and Rumpa, has ever played and Rumpa. So let's well, start the perhaps, show.
1: No, I'm sure there's one person out there who's like, yeah, these references <laughs> are for me. I love them. But the other things that we're going to be talking about on today's show are perhaps more in line with what the rest of our listeners are into. Uh, we're going to be talking about Apple's uh, FaceTime security bug, which has just blown up this week, as well as their manufacturing problems here in the United States. And to wrap things up, I'm going to let Bree go off about the Resident Evil 2 remake, it's uh, so which we've seen a bit of, and it's very exciting and it's very also. Good terrifying all right well let's get started a bad week bad month bad year for apple who as we've discussed on previous shows has seen major uh, losses in their revenue uh, which they've pinned on china and just today uh, they had their like quarterly earning call and said that they lost something like five billion in sales in china Uh, but uh, aside from that this week a bug was found wherein if you call somebody on FaceTime and before they've responded, you add your own number as if it were a group conference call between yourself and yourself and this other person, then the audio on that person's phone will connect and you can listen to them before they've even responded to the call. Furthermore, when The Verge tested this, uh, when the person press the side button as if to reject the call or hang up, the video would turn on, which is not generally what one wants when um, using a, a call, <laughs> when make, or when trying to reject receiving a call.
2: Uh, it's like it's having a good. spy device in your own pocket.
0: It's great. Yeah. It's so yeah. convenient. <sighs> I mean, you know, I have an entire house full of Apple devices, right? And on my campaign team, we mandate that all senior staff use Apple devices wherever possible. And the entire reason for that is one word, privacy. And I don't think I'm the only person that the the reason we continue to stay with Apple is privacy cuz it's not, I mean, it's not hardware, it's not you know, it's not the, the the user experience of using uh iOS. I think like Android is pretty pretty comparable these days. This is a really, 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 really big deal. And I just want to tell you, like when uh when uh Donna Brazil's book came out, Hacks, which was all about her tenure of the DNC after Goose point 2.0 kind of hacked everything got John Podesta's emails and Hillary Clinton's emails. They had experts come in and advise the team to stop using phones and to communicate with FaceTime instead because that was actually secure so this is like FaceTime is a product a lot of people are counting on for Apple to get right, and they just they blew it there was a apple a former Apple person uh that was uh sending me tweets on Twitter, and he was talking about how his worries were that when, uh, you know, group FaceTime, it was just rushed coming out the door and he was very, very concerned about the bugginess of it. And it certainly seems like an effort to like compete with Google Hangouts and other like group chat options that Apple didn't do their work, making sure this is secure. So it's, it's very troublesome. How do you feel, Jeff?
2: I've been thinking about the long view, uh, uh, going back uh, like 25 years, Mac mar- or, or uh, Mac, Apple marketing um, has sort of tried to straddle two things. On the one hand, it was the, you know, the Mac was a computer for the rest of us. It was accessible for the non geeks and everyone else. But the flip side was, you know, think different. It was supposed to be for a certain type of elite or someone who is, uh, who, who thought differently for the mainstream. And that might've been the more uh, uh, technically advanced geeky folks. And this is a problem because on the one hand, those of us who are, uh, you know, keep up on tech news and everything, it's a pretty easy fix. You just turn off FaceTime, although it's not that convenient if, as you mentioned, Brie, many people have Apple devices. So I manually went to all my devices and turned off FaceTime. Um, but... Even if that addresses the sort of of, more technically inclined part of their user base, that really hurts their messaging about sort of being secure by default for their mainstream customer base. And their customer base is way more mainstream than it was 25 years ago. They have literally hundreds of millions of more users now than they did before. And whether it's for people who are in uh very sensitive situations, uh senior people or people who are in high pressure political campaigns who are potentially ripe targets for hackers, uh, or it's just, you know, an everyday person who doesn't want to spend all their time trying to figure out how to do their personal operational security. Uh, you know, Apple has been, has had as part of its product marketing that it's sort of secure out of the box. And this really hurts that message. And, uh, you know, as a longtime follower and fan of Apple, I, I, I'm pretty disappointed.
1: Yeah, as a, as a layperson hearing this, it's not even a hack. It's just something, <laughs> it's just a sheer accident that somebody could exploit without any technical knowledge whatsoever. So as a layperson, if I if I were a layperson who was valuing Apple for its security, I'd be like, oh, well, that's, my trust is shattered. Yeah. <sighs>
0: I mean, just a couple of updates for the story, and that's completely fair, Simone. Um, so, Apple, as of today, they've shut down the server side component for Apple Services that allows Group FaceTime. So, if you haven't gone through and manually shut it down, uh, that should be taken care on the server. Yeah, side Yeah, we for no you. longer so, need
1: to, which is great news for me, a lazy person.
0: Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's but. At the same time, one of the other stories about this that was really, really concerning is how this bug came to light. Um, you know, this wasn't found by, you know, a hardcore security team, like trying to, like, you know, crack different versions of iOS. Uh, you know, this was found by a 12 year old. Playing Fortnite with his friends using group face chat to FaceTime to group chat with everyone. His mom was a lawyer. She, not being a developer, sent this to Apple, uh, letting them know about this and asking about the bug bounty. Um, they pretty much ignored the, the first contact with uh, her. She kind of escalated, used her, you know, like knowledge of as a lawyer to send like more insistent messages about this. And she got a kind of insulting email back instructing her to like set up a Microsoft developer account to file a
2: bug. Oh my goodness.
1: I didn't hear that latter part.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that's really troubling to me about this is the 12-year-old kid is not even going to get a bug bounty about this. Now, I don't know how much... I've never like participated in Apple's bug bounty, but this kid... Should be getting some money, and I mean they should even if it's just Apple bling and they're giving them a couple of Mac pros to say thank you for this
1: <laughs> like every a couple u s manufactured Mac pros
0: yeah yeah exactly I mean they need to They need to show appreciation in some way for this. Um, I can tell you, I personally have found a ton of bugs with uh, Safari's text-to-speech feature, uh, with uh, trying to use control panel to switch to AirPods in the middle of conversations, with having a transition between AirPods and YouTube things. Like, I found a lot of bugs. And sometimes it's like I think about filing a radar and all the the. The effort behind it—it's just like, do I really want to spend like a bunch of time doing this? And the answer is no. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I think this is really—it's it, just—it's bad. <laughs> it's bad on every angle. Like it's bad customer service. It's bad infosec. It's bad uh, for the kid.
1: Well, there's this great piece um, on The Verge right now by Ashley Carmen. Oh, I should say I, I I think it is good. Uh, I think it maybe. It felt it didn't go quite as hard on Apple as I wanted to. But it's about how this happens in the bug testing process. And it talks about how Apple tests for mechanical bugs in the functioning. But this was something that needed a QA team to catch it, like actual people using the 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 software and trying to exploit it. And it because it is, it's just such an ordinary, a, a slightly not ordinary thing to do, but very easy to do, it just didn't get caught and thing exploits like that but like that's so in insidious i think for for companies to have to deal with because again like i said it's very easy to exploit but um it i lost my train of thought completely <laughs> but you you have to rely on the person that you are you know hiring to catch it to catch it which everyone i'm might not think in, in the way that was needed to exploit that like that, you know, twelve year old kid who managed to find it did, but just by d-ing around.
0: Yep. No, I mean, you've clearly got to have internal teams. I mean, Jeff, you have to have seen this in your professional career. There's definitely a test to- a push towards um, you know, DevOps and machine testing to find bugs. And sometimes the only way to really find the hard stuff is, you know, good old fashioned user testing. I mean, has yep. that been your experience?
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh just as there was a quality revolution in American manufacturing in the seventies and eighties, learning lessons uh, from Japan and from Deming and such, there was an attempt to improve the quality of delivering software over the last uh, 20 years uh, with exactly the trends you're talking about in terms of DevOps and continuous integration and continuous deployment, CICD. Uh, That said, There are so many use cases and edge cases that, uh, you know, if one relied 100% on human user testing, you wouldn't catch everything and it would just be massively expensive. Uh, So that's why it's important to have automated test suites. The flip side is, uh, for your point, Bree, you also need to... Uh, you can't rely 100 percent on machine testing. You need to have uh, uh, humans the loop, people who are thoughtful about these corner cases, and do sort of integrated testing rather than like the smaller bottom-up unit testing level. Uh, and system-wide on top of that, testing, a way exactly. To report
1: bugs for, or I mean, not that they don't have a way to report bugs. They clearly do have a way to report bugs, but a way to make people feel heard when they have when they submit bug reports and. I guess clarity on whether those are being followed up on.
2: That's a hundred percent true, Simone. I agree. I, I mean, I, I think of it as sort of like layers of an onion. So the the, the inner layer is uh, sort of the automated uh, machine test suites. Then the outer, the next layer around that is the internal company employees who are doing that user testing. But then once the product is out in the wild, again, because the technology is so complex, it's People used to joke about um, uh, buggy software companies forcing their user base to be their testing staff, (laughs) QA staff. But, I mean, the truth is you're not going to catch everything. And in order to incentivize people, you need to have just exactly actually what what Brie mentioned to lower the friction of of, um, reporting bugs and helping information security and improving the product. But then also... Uh, on top of that, having bug bounties and, fi- uh, you know, financial uh, rewards, which information security teams have really found in the last 15, 20 years to be really critical to that. I, I think. This may be a a half-remembered anecdote, but I think I saw this on Twitter, which is a very reliable source of information. (laughs) Uh, In the last few weeks, someone was talking about how they were so frustrated filing uh, bugs through Apple's, what they call their radar system, as Bree mentioned, uh, that they remembered filing a radar to Apple uh, and it not being resolved for a long time, months and months. And then separately, they were hired as an employee at Apple. And then oh. as an Apple engineer, they went and found the radar they had filed and then tried to fix it and then closed it and then uh, had to send it back out to their external account saying, oh, this is the way to solve bugs. You just need to get a job at Apple. Oh, my God, no. Now, again, to be clear, <laughs> uh, this may just be a half-remembered half, half remembered thing, it's like a joke on Twitter, but um, I'll ch- see if I can find it. But... Uh, it would actually help Apple itself to simplify their bug-reporting uh, process. I, I mean, th- whether or not that anecdote is true, I have heard um, through a number of sources that it's very frustrating working with the bug reporting and radar process um, at Apple. And I, I wonder if that has something to do with the fact that historically it was more of a hardware company and didn't ha- come from an open source environment the way Google has, for example, uh, or you know Microsoft uh, in a different way, really engaging with their software developers and their third party developers and trying to find. Uh, uh, easier ways of providing that feedback. And uh, oh. even before, we're talking about bug banties and and, and f- uh, financial um, compensation.
1: That is an interesting thought. Bree, do you have any insight on that?
0: Well, I mean, not specifically with that. I just yeah. I wanted to say, um, one of the things here is Apple has to be getting a ton of random bug reports from people and I, I do have empathy that you know they're probably average iPhone users out there. They're just writing Apple randomly and saying like, I can't open my email. I can't get my iTunes to play. and And it's got to be very difficult sorting out that noise mm-hmm. from the real yeah. stuff. So I just want to have empathy for that. But I also want to recognize that Apple's Developer community has really been the the, the user testing people for iOS <laughs> for a long time. I mean, there's a reason I don't install GMs on my phone because it's it's like you're at WWDC and you've got one phone with you. It's crashing, and then you can't meet up with anyone for drinks. I mean, they've really they've used the developer community for this role for far too long. At the same time, I really hope this is a wake-up call for Apple because it's one thing if like the iWork version of Google Docs is in beta for 3 years and it's kind of buggy, yeah that's pages. That's that's not <laughs> mission critical. If you're talking about FaceTime, that's really mission critical. That is a huge screw up and Whoever is responsible to this, I really hope Apple will hold them to standards because they've really got two choices here. The first one is they can do the corporate like Facebook thing, right? They put out some statement. They're like, oh, we apologize to people. You know, this is our bad, blah, blah, blah. Or they can really show action that they take this seriously. Because I have to tell you, if a bug is coming out, like the thought of my iMessages getting out there, that could end my career, like private conversations with my team. Yeah, you know, my emails getting out there. You know, this is this is unbelievably serious. And what I want to see from Apple is a response that makes me feel like they're treating this seriously. Mm-hmm. I've not seen that. And the timeline that they have to kind of uh, put out a patch for it is also not – it doesn't bolster my confidence.
2: I really agree with that. Um, One thing – and maybe this is a bit tangential, but I can't help but think it's important from a philosophical perspective – um, I, I agree, uh, you know, f- certainly from a professional basis, Brie, you have very sensitive conversations with your campaign staff and, uh, you know, a public relations is extremely important to you being successful in your candidacy. But I think privacy is something that is still now undervalued, uh, uh, in, 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 in a lot of the conversations around the world. Um, this may be a little bit out of date, but, uh, during the, you know, before WikiLeaks became uh, very politicized in the 2016 election, there was, uh, you know, Julian Assange uh, would talk about the benefits of transparency in the late 2000s, early 2010s. And there was this idea that comes from certain parts of the internet and, uh, you know, maybe information libertarians that um, the more information that's out there, the more uh, transparency, the freer everything is going to be. And I think that really... um, misunderstands how humans work. Um, mm. it doesn't mean that there's something nefarious going on if there's private communications between diplomats, between people who are negotiating. Uh, and there's a conspiracy th- thinking that I feel like that is very uh, up to date, like you hear on, you see on YouTube and such, where you think if there are powerful people talking, therefore they must necessarily be conspiring to screw people over. Now, maybe they are. <laughs> but the other thing is sometimes in a sense of negotiation, you need to be able to say things that are in private and in confidence, and say, "Hey, I'm just trying to brainstorm here and trying to find a space for you." And for example, let's say I was representing—I uh, don't know, like the, the U.S. in a in a trade negotiation, and and, um, and Simone, you were representing the EU, right? Heck now, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if. <laughs> I mean, both our, both our uh, countries slash regions are going doing great right now. <laughs> so good. I love it. But, but, um, but no, the, the point is that um, you and I may say something, uh, I may some- say something about my American constituents, and you may say something about your EU stakeholders that would sound terrible to those respective audiences, but it may be something that is both true, if somewhat politically incorrect, and this a is way for Hillary us to Clinton's bond.
1: deplorables comment.
2: Well... That I feel like is a little that different because that was that meant was in public. public. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <That's> fair, <laughs> so, but... <laughs> so I will, uh, And uh, honestly,
0: <laughs> I would never refer to constituents okay. as I, I, a deplorable. I want to blow away from back the 2016 to your point, thing. Jeff. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: But, but, but the, and, and by the same token, and, and so then it's like, um, Simone, you and I might need to hang around an agreement where it's not just, you know, a la certain, white house occupants like winning like me beating you or you beating me but us crafting something that's durable and is seen as somewhat win-win but then if there are compromises there you have to go back to the eu and sell them on it suddenly you and i are on the same team in a way and i have to go Mm -hmm. back to the u.s and sell them on it and if all of our private conversations while we're hammering this out were thrown out there then the whole thing gets uh gets destroyed now i'm I, i do think generally transparency is a good thing but um it's it's interesting there is the 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 um, the malicious component that Brie is talking about in terms of uh, hackers coming in and saying things. But there's also the fact that I think there is in discourse this idea that um, that we need to devalue uh, privacy, that it's somehow some sort of privilege rather than a right. And I think yep. that's mm. something that's really been lost. And that's not even purely a tech topic. I think, you know, it's a larger social thing. Anyway, Oh boy, I don't know do if I agree with you know. that. I mean, even just
1: in the... <laughs> At, at, like you said, as a general cultural question uh, with the internet, I think because of the speed of the internet and the, the availability of information, there's, like you said, this idea that we should know everything, we must know everything. And I I, I think that that's an impulse that we have because it, it feels good to find things out. It feels good to learn things and to be privileged to information. but like you said, it's so obviously not how we're built as a species. Like having privacy is good, not not having to be observed every second of the day is good. And I mean, we are under observation essentially every second of the day because of social media. And now we're under observation because people can call us on FaceTime. <laughs> <laughs> and spy on us. Although, again, not anymore because they took right, away right, the just chat feature. Honest. But
0: A bug that a 12-year-old can find, to some extent, this is, it's low-hanging for right, this doesn't bother me. Like, it's going to get patched. What worries me is if you understand a thing or two about cybersecurity and you understand, like, hostile foreign states, like stockpiling zero days. I'm talking about like teams of people to like really reverse engineer iOS and like figure out ways into your phone. Like people out there working all day, every day to compromise the phones of elected officials, of CEOs, of high level people at corporations. I mean, even just even social hacking of those high level people. This is, an utterly legitimate worry about there uh, about mm-hmm. all of this. Like This is, swear to God, warfare in the 21st century. And it just really gives me concern if Apple is missing the big picture on privacy like this. Mm. How can we really trust that FaceTime, if you really go deep down into it, that you know, the, you know, the, the encryption on it is solid. How can we really know that? Because Apple doesn't make their source code private. And the thing that we've got to understand is I'm not an open source fanatic. I think both approaches have different roles. But open source really works well if you want to put something out to the public and say, here's the code. Here's what's running here's how you can make sure that what we compiled is what's actually running on your device then anyone can go in and look at that code and can like find bugs and can like address them right it's not perfect because it's more easily attacked mm-hmm. but it's also more easily defended with something like FaceTime that is completely proprietary with Apple we're trusting them to have done the work behind the scenes. But when you have something like this that really illustrates that they haven't done the work, it just gives me more concern than I can begin to say.
1: Oh yeah, it's such a it's such a disheartening thing. You know, a, as far as mistakes go, it's almost dramatically disheartening yep. that people can call your friggin' phone and eavesdrop <laughs> on you. It's like really that that's dystopianly disheartening. And it's really disappointing that Apple, a company that I trust and whose products I own a lot of, um, let that one go.
2: I'd like to ask a question about this topic before we close it. Uh, (laughs) I can't help but uh, Maybe it's where I've been uh, on the internet the last few days. And I feel like people are not talking about this nearly as much as... Okay, good. So it's not just me, right? I know there's other news. There's always massive amounts of political news, but uh, you know, I, 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 I agree with both of you about the importance of this, and I guess what's more worrisome is that it, it seems like it's made much less of an impact than I would have guessed based on severity of what we've been talking maybe, about. Just maybe now.
1: we all have disaster fatigue. That could be a thing. But I definitely did see some people um, in responses to tweets saying, well, I, I don't think this is such a big deal. And it's like, oh, I, I don't think we should be comparing it to like all the bad crap that Facebook has done. But that doesn't mean it's not its own bad thing like it, it's still a disaster certainly a pr disaster a, a trust disaster it's still a bad thing that happened like we don't it doesn't have to be on like a nuclear scale for us right, to care right. about it but we I, should I, care I, about I, it
2: I, anyway I, and 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 brie do you do you see what simone and i are seeing that <laughs> that that other people are not re- responding the way you uh the three of us have
0: well i i i want to say I don't expect the general public to deeply care about InfoSec issues, right? Like to anyone out there listening to it, we are the ones that get the stuff. It's up to us to push for policy, to make our needs known, to basically look out for everyone else. Like an analogy I use all the time is I am not the best person in the world to regulate stocks because I just don't have that kind of financial background on it. Like we're untrusting regulators and people with that kind of background to do the right thing there. So um, I, the people I follow on Twitter, this is all I'm seeing today that's because good. I follow a lot of infosec journalists uh, and infosec people. on Sadly, Twitter. Sadly, that makes me like, feel better. But, but <laughs> I mean, like that's good. That's what do, we want, right? But do you remember all the stories after Facebook's thing? It's like uh, after the Wait, election. which Facebook thing?
2: Okay. Yeah, after Brie, the alliance, after
0: Cambridge Analytica and people okay. are like, well, this is the end of Facebook. People are going to stop using it, and then the numbers come out, and it's not true. That doesn't surprise me. I don't expect a future where my next door neighbor is worried about like the 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 encryption standards yeah. for WhatsApp that's never going to happen this has to be a government issue because neither the buyer or the seller is ever going to pay for privacy
1: and i think one last point on that you know even even we the people who do care about this and are talking about it uh we have a facebook story that we're not talking about this week because we're sick of talking about facebook um so i do think that disaster fatigue is a very real thing
2: that's a great point uh i mean you had brought up disaster disaster fatigue just uh, earlier and that's i mean we're going through an example of it right now (laughs)
1: yeah it's like how many times can i say oh this is bad a bad move here Uh, (laughs) Let's talk briefly about something good, though. This episode is brought to you by Linode. Yeah,
2: Woo.
1: with Linode, you can instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud, and you can get a server running in just seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node
0: location.
1: Do you guys remember what voice I was going to do for this? It was I my think it was does. my Monocuro voice, right?
0: I want to hear. Bad Mary Poppins voice, that one.
1: Oh. <laughs> oh. oh, let's see. Okay, channel my inner Julie Andrews, but bad. A spoonful of linoleum makes the medicine <laughs> oh, go down. Some linoleum serve the customers with the help of ten dissenters. Ah, uh, and they're about to add more. <laughs> oh, oh, children, listen to me. Mumbai, India, and also Canada will have data center. I don't know why this one city in India and then the entire country of Canada will all have data centers before 2020, children. Linode features native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. That means you're able to serve your customers faster than ever before. Repeat after me, children. Serve our customers faster than before. My meter is a little bit off. And. <laughs> what are we not going to stress about? Overspending. Linode have designed their pricing tiers to feature hourly billing. With the added bonus of a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services, such as backups and node balancers. What does that mean, children? We're saving money. I love to save money, don't you? Well, <laughs> Linode has pricing options that suit everyone. Their plans start to just one gigabyte of RAM for just $5 a month. Children, what is your what are your allowances? Jeff, what's your allowance per week?
2: Uh, a solid $5.
1: Oh goodness! That's only. And there are three weeks per month, uh, mostly. That means that <laughs> this is quite affordable. And they offer high memory plans starting at just 16. starting with 16 gigabytes of RAM. That's actually a lot, I said actually, but it, it really is quite a lot. And Linode have a special offer for you, children. As a listener of this show, you can go to linode.com slash rocket and use promo code rocket2019 to get $20 toward any Linode plan. Mike curly, who is English himself, is slapping his own head right now having to listen to me speak in this accent. On the one gigabyte of RAM plan... <laughs> That is for free months. Because remember, I just said you get $20 by using Rocket 2019 as your offer code. That's incredible. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, you have nothing to lose, children. Nothing to lose. I do encourage taking risks, but this is not a risk. Give Linode a try today. That's linode.com slash rocket. L-I-N-O-D-E dot com slash rocket. And the promo code rocket2019 to learn more sign up and make the most of that $20 credit. Thank you so much, Linode, for your support of this show and all of Relay FM. That will certainly be ending after today.
0: <laughs> Mike Curly's going to listen to this episode. He's just going to be punching the door. He's going to be so upset. He's going to give What's me like? a
1: phone. He's going to call me on FaceTime and he's going to add <laughs> his own number.
2: <laughs> well, you can make him madder by replying to him in a British accent.
0: Hello! <laughs> Hello, my Curly Mike. Mike. Uh, uh,
1: uh, I know we met again at PodCon just last week and we had such a good time together, but our friendship is over.
0: You know how you could really <laughs> troll him? Next time you go to Podcon, you need to get a fake beard, like a giant fake beard. Yeah. Square it around him and do the British accent. Yeah. And also tell people your name is Mike Curley and just see how that goes.
1: <laughs> For those unfamiliar with Mike Curley, he does indeed have a beard. And so will I next time I see him. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Well, okay. Moving on to our next story. Um, this is an interesting one from the New York Times this week based on some interviews with Apple employees about manufacturing in the United States. Uh, so in 2012, when the last the last Mac Pro uh, was being announced, Tim Cook said it's going to be manufactured here in the U.S. Um, and it was in Texas. And it encountered many, many problems along the way. And the one focused on in this article is the need for these tiny, tiny screws that go in the computer. Um, and with manufacturing in China, they would be able to get a lot of screws made custom and shipped in bulk so that the production wouldn't slow down. But in Texas and in the United States at large, there was no one to make the screws to those specifications at the numbers that Apple required to produce at the level that they wanted to. Uh, So it's, it's a fascinating look at kind of why uh, an example of how the supply chain in the United States is messed up and why, We are light years behind a country like China competing in that area, which I personally think is disappointing and not 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 saying like this is disappointing of Apple. How dare you? But disappointing because from a job creation standpoint, like one would hope that this would be something that a company would be able to do, like a a billion dollar company will be able to say like, oh, yeah, we're going to try to manufacture one a, a device in the country that we are based in. And to find that even Apple had so much difficulty doing that is like, oh, God, that sucks.
0: Well, I I would say even the New York Times, which is not exactly a bastion of, you know, progressive liberalism, (laughs) like even they point out, they have a a quote from an economics professor that's like, look, China is basically an authoritarian state. And if they need to get 100,000 people to show up to do something for very low wages, the state has the power to do that. So, you know, it is... The the New York Times piece goes into a lot of it, and there, there are valid concerns uh, from this piece. One of them is, like, is the United States producing enough tooling engineers? Are we producing enough, like, people with the skills to do uh, precision manufacturing, particularly in electronics? That answer is obviously... No, and we should push for that education more at the same time, as the New York Times piece points out, the average uh the the minimum wage in Guangzhou is two dollars and ten cents an hour, and that's with benefits and I know there's like issues of artificial devaluation of the currency, but even still like that is a very. It's a very concerning number, right? So, yeah. in some ways, like we should be proud that the United States uh, would never, you know, like force a hundred thousand people to show up and work on something or paid people two dollars an hour. We should be proud of that, and we should invest more in education. Uh, one thing from this story, I'd love your opinion on this, Jeff. Is I didn't hear anyone talk about the fact. That these screws had to be specially made why can 't Apple just use off the shelf normal screws <laughs> that allow other people to repair the Mac pro, which out of all the things Apple makes is the thing that should most be user repairable <laughs> like why did they have to have like proprietary screws with that like does it have a some sort of interesting conductive property, or more likely is it some weird Apple head that only Apple has the screwdrivers to work with? I mean, um, so there's there's a lot in this piece. I didn't take it all as like, oh, America's terrible.
1: Going back to your point about the fact that in China, you can say, ah, shoot, we need 100,000 people to work on this project overnight. Everybody, come on, let's get to work. Um, We can't do that in America. I am kind of horrified on a meta level that our materialism and our needs as a society make that condition necessary. Yeah. That that level of production needs to be happening and that it's not out of the ordinary.
0: No, I think you're dead on. Um, I think something that's really worth thinking about is as we're moving towards a future with you have 3D printers in homes where, you know, millennials as a generation are just buying and collecting less stuff compared to baby boomers. Like, is China as a nation basing their entire economy on manufacturing cheap things? Is this really sustainable? Particularly as, like, climate change makes, uh, you know, shipping things all across the globe makes it more problematic. Particularly as, uh, you know, just the need for little, you know, Chotchkas, that's going to be less yeah. and less of a market is this really a good bet for for a country because i think that america could make a commitment to hiring tooling engineers like with scholarships and other things far more easily than china could come up with a new um employment strategy for all the people you know outside Guangzhou and in the villages there that like come down to work at a factory for a few years and then take their savings and go back home to their families. Like is that mm. really a sustainable model for a country? I don't know. I don't. What do you think, Jeff?
2: There's so much in this story, uh not just specifically about Apple or even the Mac Pro, which is probably one of its lowest selling yeah, uh, items in its entire product line uh, makes me think about different uh, national cultures, about uh, international capitalism, about supply chains. So pardon me as a, you know, they talk about uh, blind men and the elephant and they each feel a different, they think it's a different animal because they're touching a different part. Um, I'm actually going to be Uh, in a sci-fi version of that, like a, like, like a ghost that's like jumping in between each of those blind men as I stumble around saying, oh, it's a snake. No, it's a, it's a tree. No, it's a, because it makes me, it sparks all these different thoughts. So, uh, hopefully you guys can keep me on track a little bit. Um, one thought is the fragility of, uh, our supply chains, um, you know, apple <laughs> for for a long time the the simple uh um, the simple narrative about why companies offshore to china is that it's just about cost uh, or it's two things lower labor cost and more lax environmental regulations and there's certainly a, a lot of truth to that but over time uh, separate from the story i mean they they referred to it a little bit it's not just the low cost that uh, that china provides but The breadth and the scale and the specialization that uh, even before the story came out, and the story really reinforces that, if uh, tomorrow, you know, some tremendous new event happens in the trade war and Apple has to pull out not even 100%, let's say 40% of its iPhone production from China to, to not necessarily the US, but anywhere else in the world, I think that would crush Apple even more than all the other events that have happened in the last uh, four or five months for them. Uh, It would be really challenging, not just from a cost perspective, because yes, they have a ton of money in the bank, but literally for any price, they can't um, afford the, the the sort of built up um, accumulation of know how, of skill, of speed, of diversity, and and knowledge separate mm-hmm. from 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 the pricing. And frankly, the the labor cost in China is actually not the lowest in the world the way it used to be. Uh, I believe it's moved to the Philippines and a few, uh, other places in Southeast Asia. In fact, there was a linked article in the New York Times that came out. You know, maybe about a month ago, about the history of when Steve Jobs, and we'll put it in the show notes. When, when, uh, in the '80s, back in Steve Jobs' first uh, tenure at at Apple, how he tried to build like a world class uh, fa- uh, factory for Macintoshes in the U.S. Uh, this was in 1988, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, it, it didn't work out for a number of reasons, uh, and we can talk about that. But there's a quote in this article uh, by Tony Fidel, who is one of the people uh, behind the iPod and uh, and then later the uh, Nest, uh, uh, you know, home, smart thermometer and other home devices. Uh, he has this quote where he says, "During when I first started my career in electronics, all my flights were to Japan, then all my flights were to Korea, then Taiwan, then China. Uh, there is this... Uh, evolution over time, where you know, in the '60s, Japan was the way we saw China in the '90s or 2000s, where it was a place for low skill, uh, low uh, low value added manufacturing. Where, it, uh, but then over time, the Japanese moved up the value chain and became more and more um, uh, sophisticated in their manufacturing techniques, and they began doing not just fabrication, but uh, you know, uh, manufacturing uh, like design manufacturing. And then eventually it moved further up the stack to R&D. Uh, and then eventually, uh, their, their, their wage rate went high enough that it was frankly too expensive, uh, for mm-hmm. the people who were off- offshoring to them. And so then, uh, those companies began moving to Korea. And then the same thing happened to Korea and then Taiwan and China. And, and now China kind is still of can move on yeah. in that way. So it, it's almost like this article is fascinating, but it's, a, um, it's a snapshot in a time of, it's a very dynamic thing, you know, I, I, I and I don't think either of you is saying this, nor does the article say this, but it's not a static like, oh, China is always going to be the sort of cheaper, low-cost option. And in fact, it's still, it, it already isn't.
1: Well, yeah, like that's, some of the things they're talking about in this article are um, that in at the factory, at the manufacturing uh, place in Texas, they had delays and confusion about where products were because they they didn't have the staff and the skill necessary to oversee the production that was so complicated. Whereas in China, they have a bunch of people who right. expertise is making sure everything is where it's supposed to be, right. and um, th- that like the the skill that is built into the industry in China is. It, they they have just years of experience making this happen in a way that we don't have in the United States. So you're right; it's not just a matter of like, oh yeah, cheap labor. It's right. Ah, oh, this is <laughs> they have learned how to do this in a way that is efficient and functional, and they have expert skilled labor that we don't have.
2: That's an excellent point, Simone, and, and, and it makes me think of this um, this long running debate among economists. Right? Uh, let's say. The, uh, uh, the economists of you know go wherever it's cheapest school like like a how about the discount school of economists yeah, on the one there we hand go. right <laughs> that's where and I then, go to school and then the sort of investment school of economists on the other hand right so the discount folks say hey I mean if uh you know your your lunch is all uh are the same quality and the same convenience. Why would you pay an extra three dollars uh, for a lunch if you could get one for seven bucks? Why would you pay ten bucks or something like that mm-hmm. right um and by the same token they would say uh you should just go where manufacturing is the lowest cost because, um, that actually produces, that, that means that they can reinvest that money in other things and like consumers get lower, uh, lower cost products, which means they can spend, save more money and, you know, do the whole warm-up strategy, right? Uh, and this has been going on for decades. And then the, um, so that, that would be the discount school, but the investment school of economists is say, like, well, and that's that assumes there isn't like a seed corn effect right the problem is if you're eating your seed corn if for example in the 70s and 80s there was an, these folks were saying well if we keep offshoring things to Japan and Asia and everything else then it's not just that the, the people who do the, uh, the the final assembly manufacturing are, are going to go out of business but the people who supply and first of all there's the community aspect right um, all the people who don't work at those factories but the people who work at the restaurants and and, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, and, and do all the services around and make those communities uh, work. And the firefighters and the teachers and everything else. That – um, those people will go away. They can't be as fungible the way capital is, right? The but there's a even from a hardcore capitalist argument that there's a problem because those uh, final factories rely on machine and tooling. Like someone mm-hmm. is uh, th- those factories rely on special machine tools that can stamp out these uh, you know screws or whatever it is. And if if there's like a whole nexus of people who are not building that, then those people who got a business so that let's say in the future uh, a great American company. Like Apple comes around with its billions of dollars and say, you know what, we want to reinvest in the US. All the seed corn is gone. Like even if you wanted, even if they, they flooded these communities with money and reopened these factories, those factories would not have those supplier networks to put those yep. equipment back in, the raw material, et cetera. And, it's so and this is a major concern actually of the uh, the auto industry in Detroit, right? Um uh, there was all the about, uh, whether, uh, the result of debate about, whether, uh, the, auto industry be going to bankruptcy during the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. And part of the argument of like the government bailouts of that was to say, look, it's not just like, oh, we can reopen later. Eventually there are these like spiraling, cascading knock-on effects, uh, earlier in the value chain where all the parts suppliers and then all the machine tool people who support those parts suppliers, all of them will go out of business. So it's just very hard to wind that back. And I think we're living with the consequences of that in some extent
1: yeah eventually you have to start building it up from zero basically
0: oh i'm i'm reminded of a um you know, it was a video game competition i judged with chelsea over in france and their venture capitalist community was trying to basically recreate san francisco uh they wanted like a, a vibrant um uh, you know, space,
2: ecosystem,
0: yeah, ecosystem for people to create games. And what they found, and what a lot of other nations, including Russia and you know Israel, have found is that Silicon Valley is so unique. There's an X factor on of it, and they're leading the world. That's a very hard thing to replicate. And I'm just, I'm, I, I'm reading the story. I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm thinking to myself like, there's, there's like a short list of things a nation can really, really be good at, right? Like, we can be kind of good at some things, but like, United States, like when it comes to to coding and bringing really first-class products to the world, we do this better than anyone else. And I think it's probably fair to say that China's created a really unique culture around manufacturing that goes beyond cheap labor. It's just an expertise and a flexibility that I think it would be, very hard for other nations to to disrupt. Um, That said, I really feel very, very strongly having run for Congress that we have got to get far more serious about STEM education in schools. And this isn't a political podcast, I'm not going to go into a whole spiel, but I will say as I've traveled around Massachusetts, a state that a lot of people think is hyper wealthy and like a lot of a state, a lot of people associate with education. I'm constantly shocked by how bad our STEM programs are uh-huh. in schools. And I just, I think we need
2: better leadership on that.
1: All right. These are our well, thoughts. Well, that happy
2: note. <laughs> yeah, on that
1: happy note, this episode of rocket is brought to you by express VPN. We've seen a lot in the media lately about online security breaches. <laughs> Am I right, kids?
2: <laughs> We're nope. right
1: there with you. Right there with you. So it's only natural to wonder or worry about where your data goes, especially when something as simple as sending an email can put your private information at risk. Dun, dun, dun. Chances are you are being tracked by social media sites, uh, Not chances, just you are, you are, period. Marketing companies and possibly even your internet provider. And not only can they record your browsing history, they can sell it to people who want to profit from your info. You can take back your privacy with ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data and hides your public IP address. You can turn on ExpressVPN with just one click. The easy-to-use apps run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, and tablet. And it costs less than $7 a month. ExpressVPN was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar, and it even comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep people away from your data, you need ExpressVPN. And I can vouch for how super easy it is to set up. Uh, I have it on my MacBook now and also on my phone. Uh, It just, boom, first of all. It just so seamlessly I was able to get it running and connect to it and, like, understand when I'm connected and when I'm not connected, um, and I, when I was using it, I did not notice any kind of slowdown in my internet service. I think I was using it. It was at SeaTac Airport when I was on my way back from PodCon. Oh, smart. And yeah, yeah, because airport Wi-Fi, you know, a definition of that. So, yeah, it was just super duper easy to both set up and to use kind of Thoughtlessly, which is what I want from things. And I just got an email from them um, that says that they have an app for routers that lets you protect all the devices in your home. And you can get a router running ExpressVPN right out of the box, which is exciting to me. And that's a link that I'm going to click on. And hopefully my privacy will be respected by it.
0: So now that you've got a VPN running, Simone, you realize like next time Jeff runs India PodCon – you're going to be Lisbeth Salander. Like, you're going to have your head shaved. You're going to have piercings everywhere. You're going to be hacking everybody around you. Then you're going to steal some dude's Lamborghini. It's that going to is a awesome. side
1: effect now. Between,
2: yes. Between that and the beard, I don't know if I'll be able to recognize you, Simone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh, don't worry. I'll post a lot of photos on Instagram. Actually, Uh, no. I
2: just need to talk with you and then listen to that laugh. And that's as unique as a fingerprint.
1: The laugh is the giveaway. This is my new laugh, children. (laughs) All right. Protect your online activity today by going to expressvpn.com slash rocket. If you don't want your online history in the hands of your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. By going to expressvpn.rocket, you can get three months free with a one year package. Once again, that's EXPRESSVPN.com slash rocket for three extra months free with a one year package. Thank you so much, ExpressVPN, for your support of Rocket and all of Relay FM. That's great. I'm glad. I'm glad that we still got them. It's really Ooh. cool. I like using it. It's also a very attractive app. Hey,
0: Brie. time is for you moment. to go nuts. This is the moment I've been waiting <laughs> for. Oh, my God. I have been waiting for this. Oh, my God.
1: How long have you been waiting?
0: Since 1998, Simone so to Rush for. Oh, my God. So, okay. So, I... Uh, I try hard not to pitch too many video game topics on Rocket, but this one, my God, this is the ultimate, ultimate game. This is so good. I'm talking about the Resident Evil 2 remake. So, just to give listeners a little bit of background, the first Resident Evil came out in, uh, God, what year was it? it? Must have been 1995, 1996, and it's a classic. But the first one was really, really campy. Uh, like You really should go to YouTube and type in Resident Evil PSX opening movie and watch the original opening movie for it on <laughs> PlayStation because it's so bad, it's awesome. They literally got a bunch of teenagers and took them out to a field to pretend to be special agents. And the acting is like, no, don't go! This game, it's it's a classic, but the acting in it is just so unbelievably campy and bad and terrible. Resident Evil 2 came out. They knew that they had a hit on their hands, uh, and they were developing it. And something not a lot of people know is that there's a game in between the two called Resident Evil 1.5, where they got through an 80% build of it. And it just was not up to snuff. So they threw out pretty much the whole project and just started over.
2: No. And eventually
0: in nineteen ninety-eight came out with Resident Evil 2, which is an amazing, amazing game. Just the pinnacle story-based games. Now in 2019, we get the remake. And I have to tell you, Simone, like I I know it's only January. I know a lot of stuff that's gonna come out this year, but it is so hard for me to imagine anything topping this game. It is so good. That's a strong um,
2: statement, Bree. It's like you said. It's only January,
0: but it, it's this is what I like about this. It's not like Assassin's Creed. You're playing it for what sixty, seventy hours. The rest it's the of my damn gameplay. life, right? Well, yeah, you're trapped forever. <laughs> um, this game is really short. Like it took me about eight hours to get through my first playthrough, but that's because I'm like a completionist. And I'm trying to find everything and trying to understand the game to speed run it later. Um, you could very easily get through a clear playthrough in four or five hours, like beginning to end. And what makes it so good is every second of those four hours is polished within an inch of its life. the The sets are perfect. The lighting is perfect. The zombies are really thought through. The weapons that you're gonna get in every corner are really well thought through. The gameplay keeps changing, and it's just unbelievably tense and unbelievably it's it's horrible. I mean, you've seen this game being played, Simone. Like what are your thoughts? Because I'm not it's beautiful, right?
1: Yeah, it was I was I was terrified. (laughs) Brianna Wu? I was watching Jenna play it at work, and we just got to this part in the uh, police station where she is trying to, like, go through a library, and there's—it's just a a very tense, painful question of, like, okay, I hear them down there, but where are they? I have to climb a ladder to get down to where the zombies are— but I don't know what's at the bottom of the ladder and like where they're going to be coming from. it was just this like perfect little tense duel, like between the player's fear and the game and like trying to, to guess what the the right way to proceed is. And um, yeah, I was actually really surprised both at how good it looked and I guess how compelling that little bit of it that I saw played was. Yeah. Because I didn't really know what to expect
0: from it. So I got, was it a Claire playthrough or a Leon playthrough? Claire. Okay. So what do you think about Claire?
1: I think she's great. I know that you had concerns uh, had about concerns. her redesign. Gone. Um, but in the part that I saw, uh, I I think she was fantastic. I liked her a lot.
0: Yeah, I think you know one of the criticisms of Mass Effect Andromeda is Ryder is kind of like she's also a very young character in Mass Effect Andromeda, and you know when you're comparing uh, when you're comparing Ryder to Shepard, it's like Ryder has not had a lot of life experience, so there's not really a perspective she brings to most of the the actions around her and the rest of the crew. It's like even more pronounced. This Claire was the same age, but the acting of it, they're able to communicate just a ton more. It's like the skill of the acting and the skill of the writing. Uh, Sherry is, uh, she's a really young girl that uh, she's the daughter of one of the umbrella scientists that you save in this game. And they really develop like a sisterly relationship that is so much better done in this game than the original one from 1998. Um, so because I was, w- really was the worried.
1: 1998 yeah. one, it wasn't fully
0: voiced. It was it was fully voiced, but it was more like Claire, don't go.
1: Oh yeah, oh just Claire, not great acting. You.
0: Just just it didn't have that that feeling with it Uh, for this game as you get towards the end, like her mom, Annette Birkin is a really bad mom. I'm talking like worse than January Jones, like, (laughs) like, like really, really bad. Uh, in like you feel viscerally about that because she care about, uh, Sherry and Claire. So, um, just overall, just a hyper polished experience. And just to give you one example of, of, just how much they thought about every single second of this game. One of the trophies you get in this game if you if a liquor jumps on you and you hit L one and shove a grenade in his mouth to kind of push him away as a desperation mm-hmm. move, you get the the trophy. Keep their heads ringing, which is a Dr. Dre song from the '90s. It was hyper popular when this came out. Wow! Dad, I just I. I I love it. It is that's the resonant, amazing. I know it's awesome. Like people don't know this about Friday. It was it came out and it was popular, and then got more popular, like in the late nineties. But anyway,
1: such a deep cut. It's awesome.
0: I I just I really mean it. As an adult with a job, I really need the things I play to have intent behind them. If that makes sense, like I don't. I didn't appreciate the Assassin's Creed as great as it was. It was just like throwing more islands at me that all looked the same, and there wasn't really a point to it. I really appreciate this game for having intent and focus for every single second that you're you're playing it. It's really hard for me to imagine how any five hours of a game could be this Mm -hmm. well-written. It's just amazing.
2: The reviews that, uh, that I've seen so far are all, you know, pretty ecstatic, similar to what you're saying, Brie. And I don't know how this game was developed, but, um, you know, as I've mentioned before, I'm not as deep in, uh, games as, as both of you are or Christina, but there is a great, uh, history of the development of, uh, uh, of the Resident Evil franchise, um, that what's uh, this, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong. Uh, I, sorry, it's, um, Alex Anil. He's been writing, it's gonna be a two volume book that he's been writing for like five years, right? Oh. Um, but they had an excerpt of it, and we'll include it in the show notes, uh, about the development of Resident Evil 2, like the original one, that 97, 98. And it got me thinking about, how this intentionality, like, like, it was a combination of creativity, but also luck and serendipity to get, to get it to where at this point, uh, it was a new director for what eventually became Resident Evil 2. But as yep. you said, Brie, it was uh 1.5 first. Uh, and it was a guy named Hideki Kamiya. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know about him, but he's apparently a legend in the industry. And, He admitted that he actually had never been and never became a fan of either horror movies or games. (laughs) So (laughs) there's a quote here. He says, he was easily startled and had a soft stomach when it came to violent and grotesque imagery. (laughs) The
1: beautiful irony of that. Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
2: And and so then he had to put on a brave face. But then the flip side was he did love Hollywood action movies. And so that's where that influence came in. Uh, for both the 1.5 and the 2 version versus the original Resident Evil. Um, but even that was not great, and part of the reason they had to reboot 1.5 is because the story was not compelling. And per what you were saying, um, they didn't even have uh, Claire's character introduced uh, in 1.5, and they went to a writer named uh, Noburu uh, Sugimura, who, who I guess actually was one of the writers or creators of the original Japanese uh, show that was converted into uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers in the West. Anyway, Sugimura, like, wrote all these scenarios and backstories. He basically told them to, like, tear it all up and start over. And that's what, but that's what made Two the a so It makes me think, so like... Deep. Yeah, it's anyway. I, I I highly recommend reading this article. But, um, but
0: that's, I mean, what you just said. This is something they do in the game industry. When I was uh, some I did a piece for Polygon about the redesign of Lara Croft and the the thought behind her, mm-hmm. like taking her from this hyper sexualized character to someone like very human and relatable. And I was uh, interviewing Crystal Dynamics about this, and they were telling me about how. In that world, they went through, and they had a writer write backstories for every single one of even the enemies on the island wow. that you're you 're killing and like what their motivation was behind that and it 's just a story that only the internal development team hears, but it led to a lot more feeling in the product. And that's absolutely what happened in Resident Evil. There's the owner of Kendo Gun Shop, and he's just there for a second, but there's just something about the character that you're like, there's more to him, right? Mm-hmm. Or Martin Kavanaugh at the the station. Like he's got this famous line, in the original, like, oh Leon, your party's been canceled. And in this one they write him so he has so much concern about the officers have died around him and mm-hmm. wanting Claire to go to safety. Like, it's this this small part. And when you think about all the horror movies, they've treated like people of color, like this plot coupon disposable thing. Ugh. What really impresses me about this is Martin Kavanaugh is in this game. He doesn't have a big role, but there's so much freaking emotion behind it. Like, it's just really substantial. So, I, I just... What I'm, really worked? Yeah, go ahead.
1: I'm just. I just want to say I'm happy that you're so happy oh. that this <laughs> game turned out well.
0: I am, and I I hope am. That I'm scared about Resident are, Evil Three.
1: Oh yeah, well, of course. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so the Because they're talking, Capcom says, if you really like this game, let them know, and they will make Resident Evil 3 remake. Resident Evil 3 is a way worse game and a drastically worse story. So I'm really nervous about that. So <laughs> Let them
1: we'll know that you don't want that.
2: <laughs> I have a newbie question. Uh, you know, I'm much more conversant with comic books and movies uh, and less so with video games. And it seems like there's this culture, not just of remaking games, but remaking specific like sequels or another one. I mean, What goes in the decision, I guess, uh, of a Capcom or any other studio to say, we want to revisit this franchise, or either we want to add another, you know, like Final Fantasy, or we want to go back to one of the highlights of a franchise and redo that for modern consoles and things like that? I feel
1: like that might be too big a topic for okay. the end of our show, although I, yes, it
0: is something yes. I'm very interested in. We're very long. I'll give you a quick answer. They usually go for a cheap HD remix, uh, just upscaling graphics. Here, they redid the entire game. like Got we it. made every set just a completely new game.
1: So good. All right. Jeff, what are you up to this week?
2: Well... I have a a slightly embarrassing confession. I've been obsessed with a recent Fox TV show uh, uh, called The Passage, which is an adaptation of a trilogy of vampire novels that came out in 2010 or so. And a lot of people complained. They said, oh, this should be a limited uh, series on HBO or one of the other streaming things where you don't have network standards and practices. And it has Mark Mark Paul Gosselaar as the lead. But I don't know. It sort of sucked me in. (laughs) Sucked? Oh, hey. I did not. Oh, you got hey. me, Simone.
1: All right. <laughs> Brie, what about you? What are you up to?
0: Uh, we are... Oh, I'm doing a ton of call time and fundraising. Call and it's, time. It's, it's call exhausting. Time. It's fun. I love running for Congress. Yeah. Uh, you have know, people out there. When you get a call from somebody who's doing political fundraising, please understand they're sitting in an office with very little sleep and they're just trying to get their team paid, and they're doing this because they love this country. <laughs> so just be <laughs> nice to them. Like it's a, uh, it's kind of the worst part of the job. So that sucks.
2: Keep it up, Brie. I will. I
0: will.
1: American hero.
0: What <laughs> am I
1: doing? Uh, I have. <laughs> I'm going to see an eight-hour live reading of The Great Gatsby this this weekend, and I'm so excited, y'all! Wow. Have you ever heard of anything so my brand?
0: <laughs> that is yes.
1: Yeah, are well, you, you going to dress in
2: period appropriate, like, you know, 1920s? Oh, uh, I wish dress? I
1: could. My God. I'm so excited. Wear your
0: my curly beard and bring a monocle just to keep it classic. That's
1: actually a really good idea. And then if I fall asleep, I'll just hide behind the beard haha <laughs> 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 I won't fall asleep I love the Great Gatsby more than anything really yeah I think it's great okay. I think it's Fitzgerald's it's book. best book
0: I, I I think there's a strong argument for that
1: I've been trying to figure out why people love tender is the night so much I've been reading reviews of it and I just can't I can't relate
0: you know how you're sometimes like you, you see them? a
1: meme and you're like oh I can relate tender is the night is the reverse of that feeling for me
0: you know what you should do is you should just start like uh, there. <laughs> there's like so many YouTubers out there that just make a career out of tearing things down. You should like become an angry book YouTuber. Like this book is trash. <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe it. You know
2: what? Good you can do a Twitch live stream of you reading Tender Is the Night.
1: <laughs> it would it. be so <laughs> horrible.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i bet I, you could make it entertaining though
1: <laughs> oh god it would take weeks it took me literal like literally half a year to read that book because i hated it so much oh gosh so that's what i'm doing jeff where can we find you online
2: uh, you can find me at twitter at jeff huang j-e-f-f-h-w-a-n-g
1: and brie what about you
0: you can find me on twitter at brianna Wu. you can find me on facebook at developer brianna Wu. And you can please support me at my run for Congress by going to supportbrianna.com All
1: right. And you can find me on Twitter at Doom Quasar and also at YouTube.com slash Polygon, where I'll have some interesting videos about history coming out soon. Although not the 1920s, but video game history. Very exciting.
0: And by the way, Jeff, thank you very much for your donation this week. Oh, we appreciate it.
2: Uh, I'm, I'm Very sweet to. of you. Have we, thank you. For, but we haven't ended the show yet, right?
0: <laughs> no, we oh, haven't. If We're want still going. If to that out, we can. But just wanted to say thank you. So. <laughs> if you like this
1: show, please do consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. We super appreciate that. Helps people find it. And it's wonderful. Uh, and tell your friends about it. Get them, get them up to date on all the goings on of the tech world. Thank you so much for listening. This episode of Rocket is terminated. Terminated.
2: Terminated.